Okay, uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians. We are starting Ephesians. Are you ready for Ephesians? I, have, I usually take a week uh, of study before every uh, sermon topic we're going to do, so uh, this one got a little more, uh, it was a little more compact, but absolutely love doing an overall study of Ephesians. Um, I, I'm not saying this to like, I don't know, you could take it anywhere you want. I'm just telling you, I love the Greek. I love reading the Greek. I love thinking and reading slowly through the Greek. It absolutely fills my soul. It absolutely is like life-giving to me. So I was able to do that with Ephesians and had an absolute blast um, with coffee and the Bible. I mean, it was just a great time. Okay, so uh, I'm excited about this book. It's, it's obviously loaded. It's going to take us places you've never dreamed before. It's also going to take you down paths you don't want to go. Uh, it, is, it is breathtaking in its scenery. It's almost one of those books that's like too good to be true. You're going to say that over and over again as you look at it. No, this, is, this can't be this good. No, Jeff. No, no, no. Really. Seriously. Uh, it's going to be things that you've heard before that, that uh, easily run off you, and yet we might look at it in a different way, and it's going to take your breath away. So even the familiarity that you think you have with, book, with this book, I'm here to tell you you don't know this book. I can tell you, I probably read it more times than anyone here. Uh, I was blown away by it just recently. Um, so that's what you can expect. Here's the deal. There's a, uh, a wise, a very wise person that wrote these words and says this. Listen, a person's spirit will endure sickness. We have folks that we get sick, right? Our spirit, your, your mind, your heart, your inner being will endure sickness, this wise person says. But a broken spirit, a crushed mind, a crushed heart and inner person, this person says, this wise saying says, who can endure? Do you know who the author of these wise words are? God. The one that knows you more than you know you. He, this expert on mental health, tells us that who can stand? I mean, who can endure? Who can, who can bear a crushed spirit, a broken heart? Who can endure it? You know what God says? No one can. Not even one. So let that sink in for a minute. You cannot bear a broken spirit. You cannot bear a crushed mind. It's too much for you. Its powers are beyond you. It's too great for you. And some of you already know what I'm talking about. You know this already because your spirit is broken. You feel broken. In this proverb, though, God is also speaking about a corporate spirit, so not just the individual, the personal you and me sitting there in our inner being, in our heart, in our mind, and having that broken. It's also talking about a group spirit, a corporate spirit. And what that means is, is that a marriage can have a broken spirit. A home can have a broken spirit. A family can have a broken heart. 
It also means that a church can have a broken, crushed spirit, a neighborhood, a community. It also means a race can have a broken spirit, a nation, a culture can have its whole inner being, its whole sense of itself, its whole inner mental mysterious wonders of the inside of us crushed, broken. A broken spirit is unbearable, says God. And God gives us Ephesians to heal our broken spirits. And God gives Ephesians to you to heal your crushed mind and your messed up inner being and the spirit of your marriage and the spirit of your home and the spirit of your school and the spirit of the church and the spirit of work and the spirit of Waco. So today, today, let the healing begin. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all, please be seated. So, Lord, uh, this book is breathtaking. This book is beautiful. Uh, this is your word. And so would you, Holy Spirit, shine on the page, give clarity to our minds, realness to our hearts, the wonders of you, Jesus, who you are, what you've done, what you've accomplished, that we may experience you by faith, which changes everything. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so for over 2,000 years, y'all, there have been preachers, pastors, church leaders, theologians, biblical communicators of all shapes and sizes, Bible scholars, missionaries, and churchgoers. For 2,000 years, unanimously agree with these words of my New Testament professor, Harold Honer. Here are his words. You ready? The letter of, to the Ephesians is one of the most influential documents in the Christian tradition, the Christian church. There's another spokesman for the past 2,000 years of church history. His name's Peter O'Brien, and everyone would agree with these words. The letter to Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. Ever written. So Ephesians, by all senses, whether you're taking consensus of 2,000 years of church history, across gender, across age, across culture, across socioeconomic status, across rich, poor, it doesn't matter what your stripe, who you are, 2,000 years of church history, people have come to Ephesians and says, this is a powerful book. 
It's been a go-to book for 2,000 years for people. It's been a lifeline book for 2,000 years for people. It's been a breakthrough book for 2,000 years for people. It's been a, it's been a healing book for 2,000 years. So how should we approach this book? I mean, how should you and me, how should, how should I communicate it? How should you listen to it? How should you read it? How should you think about it when you go home? How should you talk about it to other people? How should we pray it? How should we approach this book? And here's the answer. With incredible curiosity. Incredible curiosity. Every one of us can be Sherlock Holmes when we come to this book. We can come with a curiosity that is electrified and tingling and ready to interact with this book. Why? Because we can ask this book and we can ask God. We can say, why is this one of the most significant documents ever written? Why is this book so powerful? Why is this book touching and reaching and renewing so many people for 2,000 years? Why does this book cross race, cross culture, cross gender, cross age? Why is this book the way it is? Why is it so breaking through to people? The other way we can approach this book is we can do it this way. We can, we can come to this book with a spark of hope, with a great expectation, a great expectancy, because we can come and we can think and we can feel and we can read and we can listen and we can communicate and say things like this, Maybe, maybe this book will touch me. Oh God, maybe you'll break through to me in this book. Oh God, reach me through Ephesians. Oh God, heal me through Ephesians. Oh God, go after my child, go after my spouse. Oh God, Go to my work. Go to the school. Go to the city of Waco. Break through through this book. We should have that kind of expectation. Because it's so powerful. So it's pretty stunning that with all this universal agreement on how powerful this book is for church history for 2,000 years, it's pretty stunning, though, that Though everyone is universally in agreement that it's powerful and that it touches unlike any other document, perhaps in the history of the world, no one agrees why it was written. No one really knows the occasion for the book, the reason for its existence, why this book was called to be. This is absolutely stunning. In other words, everyone says this is one of the most influential documents ever in the history of mankind on the planet. But we don't know why Paul actually wrote it. Which is absolutely stunning, breathtaking, shocking, right? Because in all of Paul's other letters, he's very clear about why he wrote them. He's very clear why he wrote Galatians. He's basically saying, listen, stop turning good news into good advice, people. Stop trying to self-activate your justification, your sanctification. Stop relying on your own achieved righteousness and receive the righteousness of others. It goes on and on like that. Easy to pinpoint that book. It's easy to pinpoint Corinthians. Here, I'm going to give it to you right now. Corinthians, he's going to go up and he says, gosh, you are messy people. And you have messy relationships. And you're a messy church. 
Will you learn to build your mess around Jesus and his salvation, please? There's the message of Corinthians. You don't need to read it now. The next one is Romans. I mean, Romans, he flat out says, he says, listen, the gospel is the power of God for your salvation. Churched people, he's saying this to. In chapter 1, he says, listen, I can't wait to come to you churched people. I can't wait to come to the church in Rome. I can't wait to come to you and preach the gospel to you. That's fascinating. That's his purpose of Romans. And then he opens up the whole wonders of the gospel on churched people. So is the gospel for the reached? Paul wrote, which I think is even bigger than this one, just for church people. And we can go on and on with Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, both of them, Timothy's, both of them, Titus, Philemon. But when we get to why did Paul write Ephesians? Crickets. Crickets. This is why I feel that I have all the liberty in the world to begin Ephesians the way I want to begin Ephesians. So this is why we're doing the beginning and the end together. So this is why I want you to look at Ephesians 6.10. I'm going to give you the literal translation. This is setting up the whole book for us, okay? From now on, your, your translation might say finally. The, it's, it's good, but it's not telling you enough. He's basically saying from now on, from this time forth, from this time forth because of everything I've just written to you from chapters 1 through chapter 6 to verse 9, from now on, because of everything I just said to you, from now on, become strong in the Lord. That is the strength of his might. There's no disagreement there. Ephesians strengthens you. Ephesians changes you. Ephesians goes into the inner part of your heart. Ephesians reaches the broken spirit the crushed mind, the messed up inner being. Ephesians goes there and heals you. Ephesians goes to families and homes and it goes to nations and races and goes to communities and churches and heals the spirit. There's no disagreement there, universal agreement on that. A broken spirit is unbearable, says God. So you know what he does? So he gives you Ephesians to heal it. So, the next question to kind of move us into this intro of Ephesians would be, okay, then what is a broken spirit in the first place? Let's describe the crushing of the mind. Let's look at the dynamics, the energies of a messed up inner being. Shall we? I want you to look at Ephesians 6.10. The answer is right there. Do you see it? From now on, become strong in the Lord. So this much we do know. Even though we might not fully understand what a broken spirit is or a crushed mind is, we do know one thing it's not. It's not that. A broken spirit, the opposite of a broken spirit, the opposite of a crushed mind and a messed up inner being is become strong in the Lord. So that's where we're going. T.S. Eliot's play, The Cocktail Party, the main characters, so, you know, everybody over in that world, they call each other Sir and Lord. It's weird. Sir Henry Harcutt Riley, he's the main character of this play. He's a psychiatrist, so he's a mental health expert. 
And this mental health expert, the psychiatrist in this play by this writer named T.S. Eliot is trying to describe a broken spirit, looking at what a mental breakdown looks like, looking at what an inner person that's all messed up on the inside looks like, and this is what he says. Here it is. Here it is. You ready? Half of the harm that's done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm. The harm does not interest them, or they don't see it, or they justify it. Why? Because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. So Sir Henry Harcutt Riley, a mental health expert, says, here, you want to know what a a breakdown of the human spirit looks like? Do you want to know what a crushed mind looks like? Do you want to know what the energies, the negative, dark energies of an inner being looks like? It looks like the endless struggle to think well of yourself. The need, the drive, the obsession from the moment you wake up, you don't even know about it, psychological, subconscious movements of your spirit is to think well of yourself. Every interaction, every communication, the way you relate to money, the way you relate to your job, the way you do ministry, the way you read your Bible, the way we go about church is to think well of ourselves. And this mental health expert in this play says, that breaks you down. We tend to divide the world into two groups, don't we? we got two groups. Here they are. Achievers and losers. So losers are losing the battle to think well of themselves. Achievers are winning the battle to think well of themselves. That's how we divide the group, right? It doesn't matter race, gender, age, socioeconomic status. We all kind of agree on this one. Ephesians comes along and says, they're really just the same. A guy named Matt Johnson explains, he says, abs of steel, which I've... And sad sack 3M TV watcher. T, do I not have abs of steel? She's, she's my gym trainer. She was my gym trainer. Abs of steel and sad sack 3M TV watcher are really two sides of the same person. Though they don't seem to have anything in common, the same diagnosis rests upon the narcissist and the depressed. We are naturally self-obsessed with our abilities and our problems. We are naturally self-obsessed with our achievements and our loserness. Our abilities and our problems. In all cases, the common denominator is self and the self-obsessed acceptance. So, losers and achievers are the same person. They're both struggling to think well of themselves. They're both struggling for self-acceptance. And then Ephesians, you know what Ephesians does? It breaks into the middle of your struggle. It breaks into the middle of your broken spirit. It breaks into the middle of your crushed mind. It breaks into all this dynamic, this negative energy and dynamic of this way of trying to think well of yourself, trying to accept yourself. And it says, become strong in the Lord instead. Ephesians breaks into the middle of our struggle and says, do not be strong in yourself. Being strong in yourself breaks your spirit. Being strong in yourself 
crushes your mind. Being strong in yourself wrecks you all up, wrecks your relationships all up, wrecks the way you handle money, wrecks the way you do your job, wrecks everything. Ephesians is saying to you and me, strength in yourself is always weakness. Always. A broken spirit is unbearable, says God. So become strong in the Lord. Well, there you go. How do we do this? Right? That's what we all want to know. Okay, Jeff, great. I've got it. Let's move on. How do we do this? How do we become strong in the Lord? Well, the joker, the, not the Heath Leather, Ledger joker, the Joaquin Phoenix joker, 2019, Y'all haven't seen that? That is one crazy movie. But the Joker, he finally, he finally finds strength. Did you notice that in the movie? Oh, where do you find, why do you, why do you see his journey to find it? It's, 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 I wouldn't see it again, in all honesty, now that I think about it. He's finally found strength. He's finally fixed his broken spirit. And what's crazy is he has an accurate self-diagnosis of himself. He understands what we are just talking about. He understands what a broken spirit looks like. He understands what a crushed mind looks like. This is what he says. He says, my whole life I didn't know if I even existed. Do you see? He's got the struggle, proper diagnosis. The struggle to think well of himself. The struggle for self-acceptance. I didn't even know I existed. And then he goes on to say, but now I do. And so all of us want to know, well, well, how? How do you know now? How did you come to the end of your struggle with yourself? To think well of yourself. How did you end the struggle for self-acceptance? What's your solution? What's your answer, Joker? What's your salvation, Joker? You ready for his answer? People are starting to notice me. People are his strength. And the Joker's believing a universal command that's in every human heart, a universal command in every home, a universal command in every relationship, a universal command on social media, a universal, this universal command that's in every institution, all levels of government. It's at schools and workplaces. It's at churches and neighborhoods. It's in communities all over Waco. This joker believes the command. You believe the command, and it's right there for all of us to see. Become Strong in people. People will heal you. Attention will heal you. Importance will heal you. Not being invisible to someone will heal you. Being noticed will heal you. I want you to look at verse 12. We'll get into this later when we really dive bomb into the book, but I want you to know this command to be strong in yourself or this command to be strong in people, same thing. Whatever form this command to be strong in yourself looks like, however you answer that, be strong in money, be strong in success, you know, be an achiever, whatever it is, be strong in being a loser, whatever it is for you, it's all part of the dark powers of verse 12. That's what Paul means. That power 
that endless struggle to think well of yourself, that endless struggle to self-accept yourself, he says, is a dark power. It's a, it's a ruler. It's a lord. It's a god. It's a pharaoh. It's an authority. In other words, it's an authority and it's a power independent of you. It doesn't exist because you say it exists. It, it exists beyond you, outside of you, and has more power than you. And then he goes in and says, the cosmic rulers of this present darkness, we would say dark powers, things like shame and fear, things like death, sin. These are dark powers, suffering, misery, abuse. These are dark powers. The spiritual forces of evil, he kind of rounds it out. These are evil spiritual beings. In other words, the command to become strong in people is everywhere. It's part of the fallen world, the dark powers. And Ephesians says it's weakness. Become strong in the Lord. So how do we do this? How do we become strong in the Lord? The answer is very simple in this text. The answer is said over and over in this text. You, you probably picked up on it. Did you see it? Stand. What? Stand. Oh, boy, that's great. Stand. Over and over again, we're told to stand. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may stand. What does that mean? Become strong. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So that. Why? Why? So that you stand. The original language says stand, even though your translation says withstand. Same word. In these evil days. So stand, stand. Verse 13 again, do everything to stand. In other words, stand, be strong, become strong. And then verse 14, stand therefore. He finally gives you the, the imperative outright. Therefore, in light of everything I say, stand. Becoming strong in the Lord is standing. It's standing someplace. Oh, don't miss this. When you stand someplace... You're standing. Standing is not taking ground. Standing is standing on ground already taken. Becoming strong in the Lord is standing on ground already taken. It's standing on ground of someone else's achievement. It's standing on someone else's victory. It's standing on ground that someone else conquered. It's standing on the work of another. It's standing on the salvation of another. It's standing on the sanctification of another. It's standing on the ground of another. Become strong. Standing has not become strong in you. Standing has not take ground. Standing has not be more, do more. Standing has not be like David, don't be like Saul. Well, which time am I to be like David and not be like David? Someone help me. When he's on the roof or when he's on the battlefield? When he's singing a psalm or when he's murdering his best friend? Please, someone clear that one up for me. Pray, read your Bible, do church, do ministry, activate God in your life, others, the world. This is not standing. 
Standing is not taking ground. Standing is becoming strong in the Lord. Standing is becoming strong in someone else. Standing is standing on ground already taken. Someone else's victory. We can't take ground. And you ask, well, Jeff, this is what's so frustrating. What do you mean by that? What does the text mean by that? Why can't we take ground? And the answer is found in verse 12. Are you ready? Here it goes. Four. Here the answer. Why we can't take ground. Why you can't activate God. Why you can't activate your life. Why you can't activate the Holy Spirit. Why you can't take ground. Four. The answer. Four. Four. We do not wrestle. Literally, this means an intense hand-to-hand combat. So this is not a sniper at a thousand yards away taking someone down. Paul is saying this is hand on another thing, being, body. This is a cage fight. This is blood. This is intense. This is body on body. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The original translation is we do not wrestle against blood and flesh. There's a reason for that. But we wrestle hand-to-hand combat, bloody nose and worse, with the dark powers. Like with the dark power of you have this obsession to think well of yourself. That's your battle. In the ancient world, there was a famous Athenian soldier. His name was Shabri. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's what I'm going with. So in the ancient world, this guy, Shabri, this Athenian soldier, he was a great white. He was a legend, right? So you, you have all the rest of the soldiers. We'll call them sand sharks. Then we'll call Shabri the great white among warriors. And so they're going into battle, and he wants to inspire his men. And so this is what he says to his men. Since we are about to fight, let us not in any event think that we are engaging the enemy's gods. Let us not think that you're going after demigods. Let's not think that you're going after Zeus or Apollo. Let's not think that you're going after Achilles risen from the dead. Let's not think you're fighting the gods. But we're going after men who have blood and flesh. Oh, Paul knew this document. Paul knew about this hero. These writings were in his time, before his time. But you're going against men who have blood and flesh and who share in the same nature we do. This warrior of warriors wanted to inspire his men. He wanted them to say, listen, guys, we have a chance. We can win. You are not fighting against gods. And Paul is coming in and he's doing the exact opposite. He's saying, you have no chance. You can't take ground. You cannot win. These powers are beyond you. You can only stand on ground already taken. You can't take a thing. And I know, again, that this is very frustrating to some of you. I can hear it. You're thinking, but what do I do, Jeff? But what do I do? But what do I do? Is the Christian life inactive then? 
I mean, why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? Why do I do church? Why do I do ministry? Why do I do community? Why do I love God and love people? Let's answer that first question really briefly, and then we'll look at the second one. The first question is this. Is the, is the Christian life inactive? The answer is no. Standing is not inactive. Faith is not inactive. Uh, in fact, Paul, you know what Paul calls faith? Standing? He says, it's the fight of faith. It is a fight, he says, to trust God. It is a fight, he says, to trust His grace. It is a fight to stand on ground that someone else has taken because it's so easy to not. Jesus comes along and says, listen, everybody's saying, hey, we want to do the works of God. We want to do the works of God. Tell me what to do, Jesus. And he says, you want to do the works of God? We want to do the works of God. He says, here's the work of God. Believe in me. That's not inactive. Jesus is saying it takes work to actually trust God. It takes work to, to stand on Jesus and his salvation alone. So according to the Bible, the hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. The hardest thing in the world to do is stand. The easiest, according to the Bible, please hear me, the easiest thing in the world to do is to try to take ground. That's why we're so broken in our spirits, so crushed in our minds, so messed up in our inner being, and our cities and our schools and our races and everything. But you already know this because you know that that's why Paul actually wrote the other letters because it's so hard to trust God. You know this because you know you don't love well. You don't love well the people you love, and you certainly don't love well the people you don't love. You know how hard it is to trust God, that it's a fight of faith, that it's the work of God to believe. You know this because we struggle to think well of ourselves. You know this because it's so easy to trust money. It's so easy to trust sexual sin. It's so easy to trust your control, to trust your influence, to trust your people skill, we can go on. You know this because that's why we're so anxious and we worry and we feel superior to others and we judge others. Faith, standing, is hardly inactive and it's hardly easy. All right, let's tackle the other one. Okay, so why pray then? Why do church? Why read your Bible? Why do community? Why love God? Why do ministry? Why love other people? Here's, this is very, very important. We're doing it not to activate God, not to take ground. Does that make sense? So whatever the reason we're doing these things, it's not to find strength in yourself. It's not to activate God. It's not to take ground for God. It's actually, we do these things to learn how to stand on ground already taken. We do these things to learn how to build our life around the person and the salvation and the work and the wonder of another. And while we're learning, guess what happens? We're not activating God. God is activating us. The church in history used to call it a means of grace. It used to talk about fellowship and prayer and Bible reading and word and sacrament. Fellowship is nothing more than friendship and community doing life together. Ministry called them means of grace. Not means by which we activate God, but means by which God activates us. How? By the power of the gospel. 
There's another reason to do these things, to pray, read your Bible, do church, love people, love God. The reason why we do good things is because they're good things. You don't need another reason. We love God for himself because God is lovely, because God loves you. You don't love God to get God to love you. See the difference? We love people for themselves because loving people is good. Not to get people to love you, to respect you, to give you attention, to think you're cool and great because you're not. We handle money for its own sake. We don't handle money to get power. We don't handle money to get security. We don't handle money to get someone's attention. Do you see the difference? See, what God has done is that when he, when he declared things good, that meant he packed his glory in it. So it has a concentration of love and joy and and life and pleasure. It has a concentration of the beautiful, the good, and the true. Stuff that's that way, whether you believe it or not, it just is because he packed his glory in it. And all we're to do is to actually treat it the way it was meant to be treated. So if you're using money to get control and security, you're mishandling money. Let money just be money. Let it be a good to work in society, to help people, bless people, bless your family, take care, buy a candy bar, watch a football, whatever. Let it be itself. So in other words, if God said the tree is good, let the tree be a tree. If God says your job is good, then let your job be your job. But if you take your job, if you take your career and you try to use it to think well of yourself, you just wrecked your career. Let your career be a career because it's good. God said it's good. You see how this works? We'll talk more on this. We have plenty of time. Ephesians is a long book. I'm not sure how long we'll be. It could be a long time. So here's how we're going to end. Ephesians invites all of us right now. Here's the invitation. The invitation of Ephesians. We're getting ready to come to it. You're going to read it. We're going to look at it. The invitation of Ephesians is come and stand. Stand on ground already taken. Stop trying to take ground. Stop trying to become strong in yourself. Become strong in the Lord. Stop trying to struggle for self-acceptance. And so our theme for this series is a song by Hillsong. It's who you say I am. Okay? What that means is we're going to be looking at Ephesians and Ephesians is going to tell you how high and wide and deep and wonderful the ground is that you stand on. It will electrify you. It will energize you. It will reach you. It will renew you. It will heal you. So instead of struggling endlessly to think well of yourself, become strong in the Lord and stand on who he says you are. Amen.